Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. My sermon this morning is entitled, Under the Oaks, Genesis chapter 18. The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. One day Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent during the hottest part of the day. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran to meet them and welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. My Lord, he said, if it pleases you, stop here for a while. Rest in the shade of this tree while water is brought to wash your feet. And since you've honored your servant with this visit, let me prepare some food to refresh you before you continue your journey. All right, they said, do as you have said. So Abraham ran back to the tent and said to Sarah, hurry, get three large measures of your best flour kneaded into dough and bake some bread. Then Abraham ran out to the herd and chose a tender calf and gave it to his servant who quickly prepared it. When the food was ready, Abraham took some yogurt and milk and the roasted meat and served to the men. As they ate, Abraham waited on them in the shade of the trees. Under the oaks. Abraham's encounter with the three angels under the oaks of Mamre is one of the most mystical stories in Genesis, a book that's full of mystical stories. And from the first century, it has spoken to Christian readers about the mystery of the Holy Trinity. And so this occurs when Abraham is living near Hebron. And he's pitched his tents under the oaks of memory. It's the hottest part of the day. It's too hot to sit inside the tent, so, so he's outside the tent, Abraham. Just whiling away the afternoon, sitting outside his tent under the shade of the oaks, eating dates. That's not in the text, but I, I believe it. I always say that. I, I think it's just, he's eating a date, you know, you gotta, gotta spit out the pits. So it's just sort of a relaxed scene. There's nothing to do. It's too hot to do anything. Just sit there, eat some dates. And, and then he notices three, well, Three men coming toward him. We've got to pause here for just a moment. We've got to pause in the story. Part of what makes this story so mystical is how throughout its telling, the nature and number of the visitor visitors mysteriously changes. I'm not going to walk you through the text. I don't want to get bogged down in that. But in this whole story that actually continues further into chapters 18 and 19... Uh, sometimes the visitor is called 
the Lord, Yahweh, God. Sometimes it's three men. Sometimes it's three angels. Sometimes it's a visitor in the singular. Sometimes it's visitors referred to in the plural. So with all of this fluid movement between nature and number, we can understand why the church fathers said that what Abraham saw was a vision of the Trinity typified. All right, back to the story. So here's Abraham sitting in the heat of the day outside his tent under the shade of the oaks, eating his dates, and he sees three, let's, let's go with angels. That's the most common way to describe this story. He sees three angels coming. And he gets up and he runs to meet them. He runs to meet them and he bows down low in obeisance before them. And he invites them to come and here, sit, sit under the shade, under the oaks. And let me get some water. I'll get some water. I'll, I'll wash your feet. And so Abraham washes the feet of these three mysterious visiting angels. And then he offers them hospitality and he says, well, well you, you, need to be, you need a meal. Let me prepare a meal for you. And they said, all right, do as you have said. And he's running again. He's run, this old man's running all over the place. He runs to meet the angels and now he runs to Sarah and says, quick, we got angels. We've got to make a, get the bread, get the best, the, the best flour you got. Makes a, I got to go. And he runs out to the herd and he picks a tender calf. Can we call it a fatted calf? He picks a fatted calf. And he brings it to the servant and says, all right, we need uh, some veal steaks. Get on it. And so they put this meal together. And then finally, uh, he serves it with some yogurt and some other sides. And he brings the veal steaks to the visitors under the oaks. And Abraham waits on them. He doesn't join in the meal, but he, he, he stands by. He waits on them. He serves them. He's a server. He, you know, keeps their glasses filled. Brings them whatever else they might need. There's so much going on here in this story. The story really is a treasury of mystical spiritual insight. It's like the burning bush story and others in Genesis and Exodus that are just brimming with, with all kinds of meaning that you can't ever seem to exhaust. I'm intrigued... I mean, there's so much that intrigues me about this story. One of the things that intrigues me is that clearly Jesus draws some elements from the story of the hospitality of Abraham to put into his parable of the prodigal son. Uh, but he also does some things with the symbols to make it even more radical. So in the story of the hospitality of Abraham, Abraham sees, we'll say God, he sees God coming, and he runs to welcome God. And then Abraham runs and, and uh, has the fatted calf prepared for the feast. In the parable of the prodigal son, it's, it's sort of reversed because the father represents God, and it's God who's running to welcome the lost son who's coming home. And then God is the one who prepares the fatted calf for those that have 
come home. In the hospitality of Abraham, uh, man prepares a meal for God. But in the parable of the prodigal son, God prepares a meal for a lost son. And it's the same meal, it's the fatted calf. Now here in Genesis 18, Abraham washes God's feet and waits on God's table. In the Gospels, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples and shares his table with them. So if the Gospel were that we can meet God and wait on God, you know what? That'd be good news. But as it turns out, the gospel is way better than we could have ever imagined. The gospel is actually that God in Christ invites us to share his table with us. It's like this. Imagine you are a server in a restaurant. And some famous celebrity that you are enthralled with comes in to dine. And they're seated at your table. And so some famous celebrities come up with somebody, you know, Bono or Bob Dylan, I think that'd be cool, or I don't know, Patrick Mahomes, you know, whatever. Just some famous personality. And you're thinking, man, I can't wait to tell everybody. I got to wait on Patrick Mahomes at, at, at you know, at my, at my restaurant that I work at as a server the other night. And you'll be telling this story the rest of your life, and you're thinking that's cool, and that's really good. And, and you're there, you're serving. And then this, whoever it is, this celebrity says, no, 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 no. I want you to sit down. I want you to share the meal with me. All right, just sit down. Come on, sit down. Let's share the meal. And, you, and you're saying, I, I, I can't. I, uh, you know, I'll get in trouble. I'm a server here. Oh, no, I just bought the restaurant. And you work for me now. But I would rather just have you be my friend. So just, I don't want you to be my servant. I want you to be my, my friend. That's exactly what Jesus said. No longer do I call you servants. I have called you friends. Sit down at the table with me. I want to get to know you. I want to hear your story. That's the gospel. Now, let's go back to Abraham and the three angels. One of my favorite painters is Mark Chagall. Anybody like Mark Chagall? He, he always works, almost always, with biblical themes. And of the many Mark Chagall paintings that I really like, one of my very favorites is Abraham and the Three Angels. So there it is. That was, that was done in 1966. Abraham and the Three Angels. That has, that for, for many years, that has often been the uh, desktop on my computer. Mark Chagall's 1966 painting, Abraham and the Three Angels. Now... Chagall's painting is a contemporary version of a traditional Byzantine-style uh, icon known as the Hospitality of Abraham. So there's the, there's the uh, traditional Byzantine-style icon. And you see there's the Oaks of Mamre, there's Abraham and Sarah waiting, there's the three angels and they're, they're having their meal. And then Mark Chagall takes that theme and turns it into something more contemporary like that, but it's, it's the same idea, it's the same image, um, and I like it a lot. Now, let me tell you the story of what is perhaps the most famous icon in the world. You know I like icons. we got five of them up here now, and they'll be here for a while, so get to know them. But let me tell you 
the story of what is probably certainly the most famous icon in the world. In the early 15th century, Russia was being torn apart by a bitter bitter civil war. You know, all war is awful, but civil wars are particularly evil because they, they rip apart families and towns and communities. And during this awful Russian civil war at the beginning of the 15th century, an abbot of an important monastery there in Russia near Moscow wanted to teach people how to overcome hatred, because that's what's fueling this civil war, how to overcome hatred by meditating on the Trinity. He said, I need to help the people overcome their hatred because it's tearing our country apart. And, I, and part of this, I want to teach them to overcome hatred by meditating on the Trinity. Now, as a part of this project, he commissioned one of the iconographers in the monastery, a monk by the name of Andrei Rublev, to create a Trinity icon that would help people overcome hate. Well, what Andrei Rublev did was to take the traditional hospitality of Abraham icon and cast it in a more timeless and a more theological setting. So, I have with me, I have, I have a copy of Rublev's. It's, it's, it's officially called the hospitality of Abraham, but everybody just calls it the Trinity icon. And so uh, this, is, this was a gift given to me by Derek. So thank you, Derek. And you have, a, that's actually just a picture of this, this one here. And so here we have um, Rublev's, this is the most famous icon of the world. It was, it was completed in 1425 to help people understand the Trinity and overcome their hatred. You'll notice that Abraham and Sarah are gone. Our, our, our focus is going to be on the three angels. Aaron, Abraham and Sarah are gone. Um, our focus is on the angel. And notice that they are still and calm. And if you would just gaze upon this, you begin to sense the peace and tranquility. This is, this is the opposite of a civil war. This is, everything is calm, tranquil, peaceful. Now, the three angels do represent the Trinity. From left to right, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You will notice, perhaps, that their faces are identical. Their, their wardrobe is slightly different. It differs from person to person in the Trinity. But their faces are all precisely the same. That is to speak of the unity within the Trinity. And you'll notice that the faces are not distinctly male or female, or perhaps they're both. That also is intentional on the part of the iconographer. Why? Well, because what, what we're told about the creation of humanity, uh, Genesis 1.27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. I mean, what I'm saying is that a, a man is not more in the image of God than a woman, right? Yeah, so, 
so the, the angels representing the Trinity are depicted as, as it were, I suppose you would say both, male and female, because to be in the image of God is male and female. You'll notice that their wings are touching. This also refers to their unity. Each of them has a scepter. The father's scepter points to the house, the father's house. The son's scepter points to the tree, which that is the tree of life. The tree of life appears in the beginning and end of the Bible. It's in the paradise before the fall and the paradise recovered at the end of God's redemptive project. But it also speaks of the cross. The scepter of the Holy Spirit points to the mountain, which refers to the earth because the Holy Spirit has been sent into all the earth. Now, you can't tell it from here. It would just be probably difficult for you to see. Maybe you can. But as you look at the cup, and notice there's, 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 no, longer, you know, there's no longer a meal and all sorts of things. There's just this cup upon the table. And in the cup there is a face, and the face is that of a lamb. This is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This is the cup represents the blood of the lamb that has the face of the lamb in the cup. The gesture of two refers to the two natures of Christ, his divine nature and his human nature. Oh, that, 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 that hole there in the middle, that hole. You know what that represents? Of course you don't. It represents uh, the catacombs. That's those little pair. We've been to the catacombs in Rome, and they have those, uh, I don't know what they're like, little burial, I think what they call them, loculi or something like that. They're little niches that they, they would bury people in. That's, that's to represent the catacombs, but specifically to represent the martyrs, the Christian martyrs. Um, modern Christians have lost the kind of sense of honor and respect for the martyrs that the early Christians had. Um, but it's put there like, because, because in Revelation chapter 6, we're told that, uh, how's that verse go? I've got it here in my notes. Uh, the souls of the martyrs rest under the altar of God in heaven. So that represents the, uh, the, the martyrs. But the most interesting thing by far, the most interesting thing, the most important thing, the most significant thing by far about this icon is to notice the empty space at the table. If you, if you just, icons are intended for you not just to glance at, but to, to look long upon and meditate. And the more you look at it, you, know, you just feel like you're, you're being drawn. That there's a, there's a place for you. You're being invited to that table. This is the invitation from the Trinity to join them at the table. In talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said this regarding his followers. We will come and make our home with each of them. We, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will come and make our home with each of them. So what I want you to see, what I want you to know, what I want you to perceive is that you have received an invitation. 
you've received an invitation to come sit in the house of love that is the Trinity. Now remember, this icon was created. This icon was created with a, in, a, in a context and a purpose. You had a nation in early 15th century Russia where people had differing political opinions, if you can imagine such a phenomenon. And they became more and more entrenched in their divergent political opinions. You had one team and they had another team. They didn't call them Democrats and Republicans. They had some either equally banal name for it, I'm sure. And the acrimony, the vitriol, the polarization became so extreme that it actually broke out into violence and civil war. And so this Russian abbot of a monastery says, I've got to help the people overcome their hate because it's, it's destroying everything. And I'm going to help them to overcome the hate by meditating on the nature of the Trinity, the nature of God, of God's own self. And so then this, this icon is commissioned that Rublev creates. And it's an invitation to come into the house of love. Hate is the product of living in the devil's house. And the devil's house is the house of fear. That's the house of fear. I mean, when you, when you take fear off the table, how many enemies do you really have? When you hate someone, what you really do is you fear them. If you don't fear them, you, you, may, just, you may think little of them, but you ignore them. You give them your hate because you're afraid. Hate is the mask that fear wears to make itself look tough. But you are invited to to leave that house of fear and come sit, sit there, sit there. You're invited, you're invited to come and sit there. In the house of love. Now, there are many, see the problem is when we, when we talk about God, we have to use metaphor. I think the only thing, the only way to talk about God without metaphor is the Trinity. Everything else is a metaphor about God. And there are many metaphorical images that we use to try to conceive what God is like. A common one is God as a king seated upon a throne. This is a true image, but I don't know that it's the most helpful image. It's true, but it's not the most helpful. Why? Because even though God is sovereign, the scriptures never say God is power. And that's, that is what is most communicated with a king upon a throne. Power. And though God is sovereign and God has power, the scriptures never go so far as to say God is power. What the scriptures say God is, is God is love. So look again at this icon. Look again at this icon. And you see, maybe you can see, there's just a, there's a I want to describe it as just a cycle. Just a flowing in a circle of love. It's just Church fathers sometimes spoke of it as the, the, the perichoresis, the dance. Sometimes it's thought of as a dance. I just see, I just see love just, everyone, is, everyone, every person in that image is giving love away, but also receiving it. 
And, and so there's just, just eternal love is flowing, flowing, flowing around and around and around. And you are invited to go participate in it, to sit there. And when you sit there, you're just, you, love will start, start washing over you. And what, what does perfect love wash away? Perfect love casts out all fear. And if you, can just, if you can just take your seat at that table, that fear that then metastasizes into hate will be gone. God is most clearly revealed in the mystery of the Holy Trinity. And the Trinity is a community of eternal self-giving love. If you'll take your seat at the place left open for you, here's what I know. Eventually, as you sit with the Trinity in the house of love, all the fear is washed away. And you will be able to sit there, you can sit there in the middle of a civil war and say, I don't know exactly how, but I know everything's going to be all right. Because I'm here participating in the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just washing over me. See, this is the grain of the universe. Why is there something instead of nothing? Because God said, let there be. Why? Because God is love seeking expression. When you go with love, it tends toward well-being. You go against the grain of love, say, I'm not going to love my neighbor. I'm going to hate my neighbor because he belongs to the other team. Then you begin to suffer the shards of self-inflicted pain and woe. Because you're, you're in the wrong house. You're in the house of fear. Leave that house. There's a space waiting for you. The table is open. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are inviting you to come and take your place at the table of the triune God where perfect love casts out all fear. Now stand with me. Go ahead and put that image back up, if you would, please, of the... And just gaze upon the vacant place. And know that what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit want most is for you just to come and take your place there. Allow the Trinity to love you. Allow yourself to be washed clean of all that is harmful and hateful and fearful. Just sit there. You don't have to do anything. You don't, you don't have to do your part to keep up the conversation. Just be there. Just be there. Maybe either, either look at that open place or, or just close your eyes, but just say, just begin to say something like, I, I come. Yes. Thank you for the invitation. I receive the invitation and I come. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And just sit in that presence. Let the, 
everything's going to be all right. I know there's problems and there's difficulties and there's things you're facing. Everything's going to be all right. Why? Because you're loved by Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You are embraced in their love. They've let you into their love. And everything's going to be all right. Hallelujah. God is a mystery, but a mystery of love. Now today, on Trinity Sunday, as we prepare to receive communion, because this is the table of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the face of the Lamb is in the cup. Instead of confessing the Apostles' Creed, which was a very early version of what really became the most substantial of all the ancient creeds is the Nicene Creed. It's first formed at the Council of Nicaea in 325, kind of reached its final form in, I think, 387. But I'm just telling you, this is really important. This is the most clear, concise, thorough summation of the absolute essentials of the Christian faith, and it's beautiful. So. Join with me in confessing this creed that our brothers and sisters have confessed for, what, 17 centuries. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's confess our sins together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is merciful to all who confess their sins 
and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your sins are forgiven. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here, the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.